0: Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor, and we are continuing our sermon series through the Book of Acts this morning. I do want to remind you. Next week we have some service time changes. It doesn't affect this service, so if you are absolutely committed to the nine a.m., nothing changes for you. Uh, But we are moving the eleven o'clock to ten forty-five. Okay, so if you do happen to come to the second service. Um, make that adjustment, okay? The reason we're doing this is is we're really trying to get a better distribution of people over the two services. We we are 9 o'clock heavy, 11 o'clock light, which... It really isn't that big of a deal, except for the fact that it really impacts Trailhead kids. Um, we, have, we have a ton of kids at the, at the 9 a.m. We would love to see a greater distribution across the two services. And so we uh, are hoping that by making a, just a minor tweak in the scheduling, uh, we'll make it more convenient for families to, um, to have more options. All right, so that's next week, starting uh, at 1045 in the second service. All right, grab your Bibles. We're going over to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Happy Memorial Day. Uh, for those of you who graduated or had kids that graduated this weekend, congratulations. Lauren and I are with you. We, we graduated out our youngest yesterday. That's a milestone. Um, not quite empty nesters. He's going to live at home while he goes to college, and we're, we're fine with that. But um, happy, uh, happy graduation day to those of you who, who either graduated or had Friends, family members, graduate. All right, Acts chapter 16. Uh, we're going over to page 925 in our Bibles. While you're flipping over there, Acts. Acts is a book of movement and mission, right? I mean, that's really what it's about. It's about the explosion of the resurrection taking place and the, and the message, the good news, the gospel spreading out in a shockwave across uh, the, the, the Middle East, really, is, as it moves from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and out to uh, the ends of their known earth over the course of the book. So it's about this message spreading, but it's also a book about the kingdom of God breaking into the kingdom of man. Um, because with the resurrection, we have the inauguration of a new kingdom, a kingdom of the resurrection, a kingdom of, 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 of God breaking back into this rebellious kingdom of man. And, and this kingdom, the kingdom of God, has been called an inverse kingdom, which I find a, a, just kind of a, a powerful phrase because its values are opposite from the kingdom of man. And we see this happening over and over, right? We value how someone looks. God values who someone is. We value uh, personal wealth and comfort. God values love and joy. Our kingdom is, is driven by greed and it really is just an insatiable need for more. We just need more. We need more comfort. We need more vacation. We need uh, more house. We need more car. We need more. We just need more, right? The, the kingdom of God is driven by grace, right, which is, which is about the radical gift of love and humility. It's not about growing more. It's about giving more, right? And nowhere is this conflict between the kingdoms seen more clearly in the book of Acts than in the way people use power. Uh, the kingdom of man— Uh, really is about winning, right? Kingdom of man is, is I need to win and win now. I need to get all I can get. I need to protect what I have. And as a result, the ends often justify the means. In the kingdom of God, we're called to die to our need to win because Jesus already won. We're, We're called to to um, resist the desire to fight for our own glory, to build our own kingdoms, to expand our own borders, and instead rest in His power and His glory and, and grow in our yearning for His kingdom. Because the gospel calls us to, uh, to die to our need for comfort, our need to win, our need to get our best life now, and instead rest in the truth that He's already won and to fight so that others can hear that message and grow in it as well. All right, so let's dig into this passage, because there's a few themes that kind of surprised me as as, uh, I was studying it this week. Acts chapter 16, we're starting in verse 11, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter, so it's a fairly lengthy passage, starting in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, "'If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay.' And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, "'These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation.' And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, "'Do not harm yourself, for we are all here.' And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, "'Sirs, what must I do to be saved?' And they said, "Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you and and you will be saved. You and your household." And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, "Let these men go." And the jailer reported the words to Paul, The magistrate have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. The word of the Lord. All right. I love this story. I love this story for a lot of reasons. Um, it is the founding of the Church of Philippi. And, um, and the Church of Philippi becomes a, a super influential church, right? There's, there's a letter to the Philippians where where um, Paul is writing to them much later to encourage them. Um, but, but Paul arrives in Philippi, having seen a vision uh, that he is supposed to arrive and share the gospel, and, and he gets there, and there's no... There's no um, synagogue in the city, so there's no natural gathering place for God-fearers, proselytes, and Jews, and, and people that are monotheistic that would, that would most easily receive the gospel. And, and so he assumes, man, they're going to be down by the riverside, because that was kind of a normal place for Jews to gather and, and worship, or just God-fearers, people who had heard of the Jewish message, maybe hadn't become proselytes, but, but, but were, were, um, had an affinity for the monotheism of Judaism. And so he went down to the riverside, and, and he started um, sharing the gospel. It says he sat down, which was the position of a rabbi, um, and, and that means that they would gather around him. He took an authoritative, authoritative position of teaching, and, and, um, and it was very warmly received. And, and so he was going down there, and, and um, the riverside was kind of like the spot you would go He's thinking strategically, right? So he's getting into a new city. He, he wants to share the gospel. These people have never heard of Jesus. They've never heard of the resurrection. And he gets there and he's like, where can I get the, uh, the best conversations, right? Where's the low-hanging fruit, right? Instead of climbing to the top of the tree to get the hardest people, where, where are the people that are going to be most receptive to the message? So he goes to the riverside and he gets a warm uh, greeting there. So they just start going to the riverside and, and sharing the gospel. As they're doing that, a young woman starts following them um it we don't know how long but it it appears to be for multiple days it's over a period of time she is possessed by a demonic spirit and um and she starts following them and and pronouncing you know listen to these people they are servants of the most high god and uh and and this annoys paul (laughs) he doesn't like this very much right he can speak for himself he doesn't need a demonic spirit doing this and um and and, and there's a lot of reasons why a demonic spirit would lead someone to do this. And, and, and in the end, Paul just turns around and rebukes the spirit. Uh, the spirit uh, leaves um, this poor girl. And, um, and the owners get really ticked. <laughs> uh, they can't make money off of her anymore. And so they drag Paul and Silas into the town council. The town council is like our court system system. Um, Fairly similar. The magistrates would make legal decisions and, and they, they bring them in and they make their case, and the magistrate uh, hands them over to the crowds. They, they beat them with canes and they imprison them. And, uh, and Paul and Silas are, are then locked up overnight. And they said, Man, make sure these guys are secure. And so the jailer takes them into the inner prison, which would be kind of like the dungeon I mean, the center of the, the prison, and actually puts them in shackles. And, and, and in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas are, are singing. They're singing, which seems crazy to us, but if you remember earlier in the book of Acts, when Peter was imprisoned, he was doing the same thing, right? There was a, there was a, a commitment to, even in the face of suffering, uh, to, to not, not denying the suffering, but, but pushing into the joy, right? Entering the suffering, but doing it with a vision. These are people of the resurrection, right? These are people of, of the resurrection. And so as they're being uh, abused, um, they are um, bent toward joy, and, and so they're singing, and, and possibly the jailer fell asleep to the, to the, to the sound of their songs. And um, and then an earthquake hits, and, and the earthquake shakes the foundation of the prison. The doors fall open, the shackles are, are broken from the walls, and um, the jailer wakes up, the guard. And seeing that the doors are open and that it's dark, he assumes they've all left, and he gets ready to kill himself because... Um, in in this time, man, uh, a jailer who didn't keep his jail secure was in for a really bad end, and uh, and so he was deciding to just take care of it himself. Paul calls out, "Hey, man! Hey, hey, hey! We're here! Don't do it, man!" Uh, none of no one left, and and so he comes in and he puts on the lights, and and he's amazed and relieved and overwhelmed, and and and, and so he brings him out, and he's like, "Man, what do I need to be, need to do to be saved?" and Interesting question. It could be, you know, that he's asking, man, what do I need to do to save my life, right? All these doors are open. All these people could have escaped, yet you kept them from leaving. What do I need to do to be saved, What are you going to demand of me? But I think it's a, I think it really is a more existential question than that. I think it's bigger than that. He's like, your God is obviously big and powerful, right? I heard you singing praises to him in the face of suffering. I don't get it. How do, I, how do I get delivered like that? How do I get saved like that? So Paul shares the gospel with him. And then the, the guard actually takes him to his home. And Paul shares the gospel with his entire family. And, and they become believers and he baptizes them that night. And, and he feeds them and he dresses their wounds. And, um, and then the following morning, the, the, the magistrates send the police basically saying, all right, go ahead and release them do it quietly, tell them to leave town immediately, and um, Paul's like, no, that's not going to happen. We're Roman citizens. Roman citizens have rights. Roman citizens cannot be um, beaten without a trial. They cannot be imprisoned without due process. Someone who wasn't a Roman citizen did not have the same rights in that society in that time that Roman citizens did, And, and the magistrates just assumed by looking at them that they were not Roman citizens. But somehow they either purchased it or were born with the birthright of it, but they were Roman citizens, which means the magistrates were in trouble. Because had Paul and Silas brought a complaint to the tribunal over the magistrates, they would have been found in violation of Roman law, and they themselves would have been in really bad shape. Um, the Romans had swift and severe justice. And so Paul says, no, we're not leaving quietly. That's not going to happen. They beat us publicly. They can come release us publicly. I want an apology, and I want them to release us. So the magistrates come. They apologize once they've heard, oh, my goodness, these guys are Roman citizens. And they're like, will you just please leave quietly, right? And Paul's like, well, leave when we're ready, right? So he goes to Lydia's house, and he meets with the new believers, and he strengthens them, and then they leave, right? Paul wasn't being, I don't know, difficult or snarky or prideful here. Paul was offering his protection to the early church in Philippi. By challenging the magistrates. He was sending a warning signal to them. Um, you can't make these judgments. You can't just bring this. So, so what he was trying to do is as he was leaving, they would be more, more prone to, to offer respect to that new community of believers in Philippi. They would be more prone or, or less inclined to, to bring them into judgment, to, to attack them quickly. And so that's kind of the, the story of this thing. And, and this passage, man, it's had a big impact on me, and really on the early days of, of planting Trailhead. Um, in the early days, I, I came over. There was a, a church plant here that had failed, and, and um, the lead guy had disqualified himself and, in the first year, and, and this small group of, of eager believers, man, were exhausted. They'd been trying to plant a church. They had been trying to be on mission, and, and it hadn't been going anywhere, and the lead guy had betrayed them, and, and there were about 25 of them, and I started meeting with them, and I, I just knew Man, we need to get get these guys on mission, right? Because the the, the inclination when everyone's wounded is just circle the wagons and lick your wounds and kind of take care of each other. I'm like, we need to push out. And so this passage actually impressed me. So I came to the team and I'm like, man, we need to find our riverside. We need to find our riverside. What's our riverside in Edwardsville? Where, Where can we go that we're most likely to find receptive listeners to the gospel? Because we need... We need some energy, man. We need some. So we prayed about it. We identified SIUE. And so we went over to SIUE and... And man, just spent hours and hours and hours on campus. We did old school stuff, man. We were walking the campus just sharing the gospel, right? Like like cold call walking. Like, hey, you know, we had these coupons for Sacred Grounds uh, for free coffee. And hey, you know, it's like the bait and switch. Hey, you want some free coffee? Let me tell you about Jesus kind of a thing. Um, Which which I don't generally advocate. We weren't trying to make it totally weird. But it was just a way for us to say, um, hey, man, we want to give you a gift. We're a new church in town. Are you interested at all in a conversation? And God opened all these crazy doors for conversation. It was really good because it pushed our people out of their comfort zone, right? They all of a sudden had to, to stop thinking about their own comfort and kind of get out there and, 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 and talk about Jesus in ways that, that made them uncomfortable. But it also opened all kinds of crazy doors. And God really blessed. God really blessed. When we had our first baptism at Trailhead, we had five people signed up for the baptism, and every time I do this, I open it up for, for a spontaneous response. Now, we always vet people. We always bring them into conversations and make sure they understand the gospel and make sure that, 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 that baptism is appropriate. But, but we went ahead and opened it up. We baptized 18 people that day. I mean, it was incredible. I'm like, oh, this is the way it's going to be from now on. It wasn't. But it was the way it started. Like, it was exciting. Like, like we were over in that little bank space, and the room was just buzzing right? I kept just baptizing people. I'm like, who else, you know? And, um, and it was exciting. And, and it was because, you know, really because God had ident- helped us identify our, our riverside. So Paul, um, man, he builds his, his launch team um, by going to the riverside, right? He, he meets Lydia. She's a woman who, who sells items of purple, which means she was wealthy because during that period of time, Uh, Most people wore white, not only because it helped keep you cool, but because it was the cheapest cloth to make. You had to hand dye all of your fabrics. And the darker the cloth, the more expensive it was to make, which is why royalty wore purple, because it was really expensive to make. And so the fact that she made items of purple cloth tells us a lot about her. She was somebody who had uh, astute business sense, somebody who had built up uh, significant means. She had money. Uh, and we find that out because after she became a believer, uh, she actually opens up her home um, for for the church. Now, homes during this period of time are not like ours, right? They weren't like, oh, you got 2,000 square feet, three bathrooms. Okay, we can fit about, I don't know, 15, 20 people in there. They were compounds, right? They were compounds. And, and generally, they were homes, and, and the home was kind of the marketplace. And and um, the more elaborate or, or, or uh, bigger the compound um, the more it could house. And so the fact that she could open up her home for the entire church, uh, the, this new community in Philippi, tells us that she was a woman of means and, and, and probably a leader in the community, right? So, so he, 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 he has Lydia, uh, who is this brand-new believer, right? And, and, and then um, he's got this girl who was rescued out of demon possession and a life of human trafficking, And then he's got this Roman guard, a man who is pretty much universally despised because guards weren't valued. For their uh, interrelational skills, they were valued for their brutality. Guards were valued because they kept bad people in contained spaces, right? These guys were, were not kind people. They, they tended to be uh, people that, that had been trained in, in certain levels of brutality, right? So he's got this guard, and there were probably some other believers, but those are the most notable. This is Paul's launch team for the church, right? And it's an all-star launch team. And I'm not kidding. It is an all-star launch team. You know why? Because these were people who were desperately in need of love. These were people that, that responded joyfully to the message of grace. These were people who drank deeply of grace and were eager to share it with others. God used these folks to start the church in Philippi. Persecution returns later. Um, the persecution of Paul and Silas is, is really a foreshadowing. The persecution does return later to the church in Philippi. We find out that they turn uh, into a church of poverty, which means that more than likely Lydia faced certain economic um, persecution and others in the church, and they found limited uh, opportunities as the community rose up against them. And, um, and as a result, they, they do fall into poverty. Uh, but they never stop supporting Paul. They never stopped sacrificing financially to fund Paul's um, gospel mission. In fact, many years later, when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 8 9, he uses the Philippians as an example of generosity. He says, Their abundant joy and extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity. Listen to that again. Their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity. I mean, what kind of math is that, right? Joy and poverty equals generosity, right? That's grace math, right? Uh, This passage um, really gripped my heart. And, And out of this passage, I ended up preaching a sermon series called Get Greedy, and it was about three and a half years ago. And out of that sermon series, there was an outpouring of generosity from this community. And our church raised almost $700,000 over three years, and it was that $700,000 that equipped us to get into this building, renovate it, and be here this morning. So when I say I'm thankful for this passage, when I say I'm thankful for these people, I mean it, right? They had a direct impact on our community. 2,000 years later, their faithfulness is spurring our faithfulness. Their faith is increasing our faith. So when I read this, um, I really feel great affection for these folks, and I believe we owe them a lot. Now, there's many things that we could really focus on in this story, um, but my attention was really gripped this week by something that I believe is very relevant to us culturally today, and, and it's actually the guys who were causing Paul so much trouble. All right, they were the dudes that were acting like pimps, right? They, they had this, this gal who, who was demon-possessed, and, and they were selling her, right, for the purpose that, that she would make predictions because of her um, demonic possession um, for, for others. And, uh, you know, the, the, literally in the text, instead of saying spirit of divination, it says, it says she was possessed by a python spirit. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that is, but it's bad, right? And, and it clearly wasn't pleasant for her, and it gave her these unique skills that, that made her uh, attractive to these guys because during this period of time, um, divination was hugely profitable. So they would sell her to, to businessmen, to political leaders, people who wanted to have advice about what decisions to make, what direction to go, and, and they would pay a lot of money if somebody actually had a, um, a, a genuine... I would call it a gift, but it's really a curse of, of this case. And so um, here's the thing, you guys. These guys, there's no indication that these guys paid any attention to Paul and Silas in the beginning. Paul and Silas were going down to the riverside, sharing the gospel, meeting with God-fearers, and these guys couldn't care less, right? What, what did it matter to them, right? They were just about making money. They couldn't care less until the work of the gospel cost them money. Right? Take a look at verse 19 again, because I want you to see this clearly. In verse 19, it says, if I can get in the right chapter. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. All right, so it's very, very clear what their motivation was. When they saw that their hope of gain was gone, they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them into the, uh, before the magistrates. That makes sense to us, right? It cost them money, it made them mad. And I think it would have made sense to anybody who had been paying attention during that period of time as well, right? They, are, they were profiting off of the suffering of this woman, and when she was delivered... She couldn't make them money anymore, right? So when Paul delivered this girl from her demonic prison, he also delivered her from their exploitation, and they were ticked. But I want you to notice that the charges they bring, when when they bring Paul and Silas before the council, have nothing to do with money. There's really a demonic logic in their approach, in their complaint, that I think is just as active today as it was back then. Take a look at verses 20 through 22. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city, and they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Verse 22 is the result. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. All right. There are three complaints that these guys bring against Paul and Silas. Their first complaint in verse 20. These men are Jews. Now, why would they start here? Because that's not their complaint. They didn't have any problem with them being Jews before when it didn't cost them any money. Why do they start here. What does this have to do with anything? I'll tell you why. It's because they're playing to the implicit bias of their culture. In that Gentile culture, these guys, the, the ones that are exploiting the young girl, enjoy the privilege of being trusted. In that culture, They swim in the same cultural stream, they speak the same cultural language, they have the same cultural face, and as a result, people in that culture implicitly trust them, because we trust people who look like us. We trust people who sound like us. They trust people who reflect us back to us. They are insiders, and as insiders, they enjoy a a high level of privilege within that culture. So people will give them the benefit of the doubt. People will automatically identify with their grievances. Um, every culture deals with this. This is, this is, I believe, been true of all human cultures. Studies have shown that we have a tendency uh, to trust people who look like us. Studies have shown that, that people have difficulty um, seeing fine facial distinctions in people from different races. Like, we can see people who look like us, and we can easily tell them apart from one another. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, they all look the same to me? Which, of course, is a very insulting thing to say. But there's actually science behind that. It's because we get used to seeing ourselves, and we can pick up fine distinctions in people who look like us, but but people who don't, people who are racially different, we become detail-blind. And as a result, we tend to see them all in in ways that are more stereotypical than actual. And as a result, implicit bias becomes part of human culture. We have a bias toward those who are racially like us, and we tend to have a bias against people who are racially not like us. We tend to trust people who reflect us back to us. So in this culture, Jewish people were the outsiders. In this culture... Uh, they start here uh, with a very clear purpose. They want to stir up racial mistrust and prejudice. That's what they want to do. It's not an exaggeration to say that the Jewish people were a despised people in the broader Gentile world during this period of time. Right? They lived in Israel, but they did commerce and business with the broader non-Jewish world, and, and they were, by and large, a, a despised people. I mean, think about it. They dressed weird, right? They had this weird religious law that caused them to dress differently than anybody else. They ate weird, right? They, they didn't eat the same foods everybody else ate. They had weird rhythms of work and rest that, that they were really, really sticklers on, right? That, that nobody in the Gentile world paid attention to. These guys were really, really shrewd in business, they would, do, they, would, they would move into the Gentile world to conduct business, but the purpose was to gain wealth and bring it back into the Jewish world. And so they became, in some ways, mistrusted. Uh, it wasn't that they were necessarily being unfair or, 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 or deceptive, but, but they were very introcentric. So they focused on themselves, and, and they were a bit standoffish. The Jewish people despised the Gentile world, and the Gentiles would have been aware of that. And, and so by starting here, the men who are bringing the case against them, are appealing to their culture's common prejudice. And by starting with the implicit bias of the crowd, they're getting them all defensive in the same way. Right? They're getting them all defensive in the same way. They are Jews. Then they bring their second complaint. They are disturbing the city. Now, they still don't get to their complaint. Why did they bring them before the council? Because it costs them money, right? An honest thing to say would be, these guys are doing something and it cost us money and it made us mad. But no, what they say is they're disturbing the city. They're not saying, hey, they disturbed us. They're disturbing the city. They start by appealing to implicit bias, and then they move to an appeal to fear and the need for security. They take their offense and they broaden it to a general experience. Now, this is an interesting thing, you guys. Think about this. To stir up fear, you don't have to actually point to something that actually happened. All you have to do is point to what could happen. If you want to stir up fear, you don't have to, oh, this is what happened. All you have to do is say, well, this could happen. They're Jews after all, right? Outsiders, people we intrinsically distrust, people that are different from us, look different from us, speak different from us, people we don't trust, and and, you know, these bad things could happen. See, nobody paused to ask, are they really disturbing the whole city? Nobody paused to ask, how are they disturbing the whole city? No one stopped to ask, are they really disturbing the whole city? You know why they didn't? Because of the implicit bias. They had an implicit bias toward the people bringing the complaint and an implicit bias against the men that were bringing, had the complaint being brought against them. And as a result, they just gave trust to the people who brought the complaint and moved in distrust toward those that, that were different from them, right? The Jews were outsiders. They can't be trusted. It doesn't matter if they've actually disturbed the city. It's enough that they could. You catch that? It doesn't matter if they actually did it. It's enough that they could. See, once you identified a bad guy and unified everybody in distrust against them, and then created a sense of fear against what they could do, your work is done, right? The minority group doesn't have to actually do anything wrong if the majority have already determined they are a threat and can't be trusted. Now, Paul and Silas didn't do anything wrong. Paul and Silas did not disturb the whole city. Paul and Silas, but that doesn't matter. So here, it, it becomes a moral imperative to stop them before they can. In, in the majority population's mind, these people could do something really bad. So it becomes a moral imperative to stop them before they can. So now that they've unified the crowd in distrust and fear, they move on now to motivate the council. Here's their third accusation. They advocate customs that aren't lawful for Roman citizens. They advocate customs that aren't lawful for Roman citizens. Let's just pause for a moment, and this is a lie. There's no truth in this accusation, but that doesn't matter because they've already appealed to the bias. They've already motivated the fear, right? So so it really doesn't matter that, that it's true. So the council... Is responsible to both the people and to Rome. So I want you to catch, they're kind of in a tricky situation, as most politicians are, right? They're responsible to the people they're leading right? And they have to lead in such a way that that these people are somewhat satisfied with their leadership. It's not because they had democratic elections, but because if things get too unsettled, they become in danger from Rome to whom they're accountable to, right? So they've got this power they're accountable to, they've got these people they have to lead, and they have to keep these people happy enough that, that they don't create problems, right? Because what Rome really wants is never to have to think about Philippi. That's what Rome wants, they want Philippi to just stay peaceful and quiet, paying their taxes and going through life, and that's the magistrate's job. So the magistrate find themselves in this difficult situation of, of needing to keep the peace but also needing to bring justice, right? And so the accusers frame their accusation in a way that manipulates both needs, the need to keep the peace and the need to bring justice. They are appealing to both law and order and challenging their patriotism. We have to act to keep law and order. And if you don't, you're obviously not a good Roman citizen because they're upsetting things that that good Romans value. These people are outsiders. These people are, are not to be trusted. These people are dangerous. So you better act now. And if you don't, you obviously don't love our Roman way of life. Not the way we do. All right, none of this is true. But it doesn't matter, right? There isn't any hint that the council is actually inclined to give Paul and Silas the benefit of the doubt. They want to keep the peace, and they want to just move on, which I think is why they show up early the next morning, and they're like, hey, you guys, just get out of town. Just go, right? We beat you, we imprisoned you, we made our public show of strength. Now just get out of here. Right? But even if they had wanted to give Paul and Silas the benefit of the doubt, can you imagine how the crowd would have responded at this point? If the council had come back, the magistrates had come back to the crowd and said, hey, you guys, th- there's no truth here. They haven't done anything wrong. Right? Can you imagine? The crowd would not have been like, oh, you're so right. You're reasonable. We're not. Now, once they're unified around a common enemy and motivated by fear, common sense is out the window. It's not rational. They want justice, and by justice, they just want something done the way they want it done. It has nothing to do with what's actually just, right? If they had come back to the crowd and been like, hey, guys, we need to think this through, they would have come back and said, hey, do you want these guys attacking your children? Do you want them taking your jobs? Do you want them bringing in their crime and their violence and their hatred for our way of life? The accusers were masterful. And the magistrate responded. So what did they do? The crowd man stirred up into a frenzy, attacked him. And the magistrates, like, ripped their shirts off. Let's cane them, right? Which is a public form of, of discipline during this period of time. And so they took the rods and, and they caned them and, and, and stuck them in prison. In all this chaos, you know what was never done? <laughs> no, one, no one ever asked Paul and Silas what they had done, who they were, why they were there. You know how I know? Because had they paused and asked, they would have found out they were Roman citizens. They never did. So these guys felt justified. The crowd felt justified as they beat them. They felt like they were finally standing up for law and order, protecting their way of life and enacting justice. The problem is they weren't. And it wasn't until the dust had settled and the new dawn had come that the truth emerged that Paul and Silas weren't lawbreakers. They were. And in their zeal to stand up for law and order, they broke the law and endangered, in the name of security, endangered their own safety. So what do we do with this? I think there are a few things uh, that we can learn from this, especially as we compare how the two groups, Paul and Silas, and the men bringing the accusation, how they exercise and look at power. Because we can see the values of the two kingdoms working their way out in the behavior and the motivations of the two groups, right? The kingdom of man is all about the inward pull of me. It's about my prosperity, my security, my interests. My interests are at the center of the kingdom of man, and that means winning is the ultimate value, keeping what I have and getting more, protecting who I am and, and, and um, eliminating all threats. With the kingdom of God, the central pull is not toward me, but it's an outward push of love. The central urge of the kingdom of God is not about protecting me, enhancing my glory, increasing my security, uh, growing my wealth. That is not the impulse of the kingdom of God. At the heart of the kingdom of God is, is a push of mission, and the mission is love. And love is about giving. And love is about knowing. And love is about meeting people where they are and sharing grace with them so that they also can come to the feast of grace. The kingdom of God has the, the work of God and the glory of God as its center. And love is its ultimate value. So if we're going to be good citizens of the kingdom of heaven and not be driven by the values of the kingdom of man, here are a few principles I think we we would do well. We need to confront the implicit racial bias of our own hearts. We need to confront the implicit racial bias of our own hearts. Every culture has it. Every people have it, right? I think we're blind. That's the whole point. Implicit means you don't see it, (laughs) right? Implicit means that it's like glasses that you look through to see the world. It affects how you see everything, but you forget they're even there, Implicit racial bias has a way of, of impacting your every interaction, impacting the way you relate with people who look different than you, who come from different backgrounds from you, who speak a different language from you. For us to be good citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we need to own that, right? The men um, that, that, that were attacking Paul and Silas, they exploited implicit racial bias in order to leverage their privilege and win. They exploited it because they knew it was there even though they wouldn't admit it was there. That's that's the irony of it. We know how to use it to protect our privilege, even if we want to admit it doesn't exist. Paul and Silas, on the other hand, rejected racial bias, and we see that through the pattern. They are continually seeking to love people who are very, very different from them. They're humbling themselves to move into relationship with people who look different from them, are in different socioeconomic classes from them, different racial backgrounds from them, different genders from them. They are coming in humility to listen and to learn and to love, not moving in the privilege of their power to win and to dominate and to grow. Believers should be pushing in to this. And learning to see themselves clearly. And as they learn to see themselves clearly, they they come to see the world more clearly. Because if we never see the glasses, if we refuse to acknowledge they're on our face, we will continue looking through those biases and they will continue to influence our attitudes, our assumptions, the way we interact with people. We need to get good at examining our own hearts. That's what it really comes down to. We need to get good at examining Our own hearts because this is a gospel issue you can't love people well if you can't see them truly you can't love people who are different from you unless you can come to see them as they actually are which means learning to see the fine distinctions not just of their face but of their character not just of of their physical features but of their culture and we can only do that if we humble ourselves And actually become learners and seek to listen and to to value and honor people who are different from us. Secondly, we need to confront our tendency to distort the truth to increase our glory and security. Let's just admit it. (laughs) We all have this tendency. It usually begins first with lying to ourselves before we lie to others, it begins with us deceiving our own hearts about our true motives telling stories or framing narratives that, that kind of change why we're doing what we're doing, right? So in the same way these guys were motivated by the fact that they had lost money but never admitted it, we do things all the time where we never admit our true motivation, right? Where we never actually own the genuine motivations of our hearts. We need to confront our tendency to distort the truth to increase our glory or security, The men distorted the truth to their advantage. Paul and Silas told the truth to their danger. Paul and Silas shared the gospel faithfully, opened up about their brokenness and need for grace so that others could be invited to the table of grace. They shared the truth that others might be blessed even though it came at great risk to them. They weren't deceiving others to increase their glory or their protection. They were speaking truth in a way that made themselves more vulnerable so that others could be blessed. In connection with this, I would say that the gospel then requires us to speak the truth to systems and in environments where people are implicitly acting on lies. We need to be people who turn on the light, even when it's uncomfortable for the light to be on. We need to be people who are willing to, to speak the truth, even, even when it's just our good old Uncle Joe who, who, you know, good-natured, but, you know, a little rough around the edges. We have these ways of explaining these things. We need to be people that are willing to speak the truth in love. That's the key, right? People that are willing to, to tell the truth even if it in, endangers us for the good of others, that we might become agents of, of grace, and thirdly, we need to confront our reactionary motivation of fear. We need to confront our reactionary motivation of fear. None of us to be afraid. And fear causes us to either pull back or rush forward. Depends on your wiring. But fear is either going to call you, cause you to pull back and self-protect, or to push forward and attack. We need to become a people that analyze our fear. And expose it for what it is, which is often our need to protect ourselves. Our need to grow our own glory. Our need to keep what we have and grow more. Which is the heart of the kingdom of man. The men who brought the accusation against Paul and Silas stirred up fear in the name of justice and security. Paul and Silas? Man, they sang in the prison. They sang in the prison. They weren't obsessed with their own security. They weren't obsessed with the boundaries of their own glory. They were obsessed with a risen Christ and the message of the resurrection. And that caused them to move in the humility that allowed them to be humiliated without being humiliated, to be treated as as criminals without the defensive urge to protect themselves or define themselves. It allowed them to rest in the glory of Christ instead of fight for their own glory, to rest in the protection of the resurrection instead of fight for their own protection, to rest in the security of God's love, even if it meant endangering the security of their physical bodies. You guys, we don't make good decisions if we're operating out of fear. We just don't. We are easily manipulated, and we will actually manipulate others without even noticing it because we're deceiving ourselves while we do it. You guys, faith frees us from fear. The more we grow in our faith in Christ, the less fear will have a gripping control of our hearts. Jesus rose from the dead so we can reject the urgency of fear. All right, you guys, our culture today is very much like this crazy council. It really is. A lot of voices, a lot of people yelling, a lot of passion, a lot of fear, a lot of lying, and a lot of manipulation. Our culture is very much like this crazy council meeting. And our communities, our nation needs us as followers of Christ to be sane. Done by the love of God and moving in the grace of God. Not motiva- motivated by fear, but walking in faith. Not determined to protect ourselves, but determined to risk it all. That by all means, some might hear about the grace of God. You guys, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. Put some questions up on the screen for our reflection and. We'll share communion in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you see us exactly as we are. Lord, you, as different as we are from you, every single one of us, you see all of our fine details. You don't stereotype us. You don't uh, categorize us. You see us. Now, that's both terrifying and comforting. You see our every motivation. You are not deceived by any lie. We tell others, we tell ourselves. You see our our vainglorious nature, our need to build our own glory and kingdom to protect our own names. You see our fearfulness that that we claim is really just a a rightful need for security. It's really just, man, our need to self-protect. And you love us. You love us and you invite us into that love that we might be freed into the boldness of faith. Father, I pray that we might be a people bold in faith. That we might be a people that, like the Philippians, continue to move forward in the boldness of faith in the face of a crazy culture, not shaped by the currents of self-interest, self-protection, self-glory, but are moved in love to share grace. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.